Well, good morning, Golden Corner Church. Oh, come on now. What was that? Good morning, Golden Corner Church. That's ah, more like it. You feel better after saying it that way, don't you? I feel better having heard you say it that way. Uh, glad you're here uh, this morning. I'm going to be preaching from the Old Testament book of Ruth, chapter 3. Now, if this was a standalone sermon, in other words, it wasn't a part of a series, I would have had trouble finding a title for it because I found several that I thought might work. For example, the first one that came to my mind was How to Marry a Millionaire in Less Than 90 Days. Uh, How's that sound? You know, I I thought, well, there may be another one just as good because it's kind of a testimonial. Uh, Maybe we could have titled this message, uh, How My Mother-in-Law Jump-Started My Dating Life. (laughs) Huh? Hey, it'll work. You'll see as we get into it that that would have worked. And maybe the third one I considered was, what do you do if you wake up and there's a strange woman in your bed? (laughs) Oh, come on now. You kind of died out on me there. I can just imagine somebody listening to this sermon and, uh, on a podcast and turning to their husband and saying, Lloyd, I told you about those people. <laughs> but it is a part of a sermon series. The sermon series is entitled The Mystery of Suffering. So I guess we'll just call it The Mystery of Suffering Part 3. How's that for a lack of creativity? If you're visiting with us for the first time, what we're doing is we're going through the Old Testament book of Ruth, and we're looking for the answer to a question, and the question is, why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's what we're doing. Now, thus far, we've been tracking the lives of two women, one whose name was Naomi, she was an Israelite woman, the other whose name was Ruth, she was a Gentile, and she happened to be the widowed daughter-in-law of Naomi. A lot of bad things had happened to them. For example, both of their husbands had passed away, which put them living below the level of poverty. They have returned to, uh, to Naomi's hometown, Bethlehem. And there they, they showed up at the beginning of the barley harvest and just before the wheat harvest, and they encountered this gentleman, a godly, wealthy, generous man named Boaz, and He kind of helped them, assisted them to plug into their welfare system. And so for seven to ten weeks, they've been kind of living day to day, but they are making it. Now they they come, but now they've come to the end of the harvest. It kind of appears the welfare program is going to cease. They got some things to think through, and I think Naomi had been thinking them through. And She said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, I know exactly what you need. You need a man. <laughs> some of you are thinking, boy, that's maybe the worst advice anybody could have given her. And your uh, famous last words, you need a man. She says, you need somebody who's going to care for you long-term, who provide you with a place to live, food to eat, who would love you, treasure you. 
And I think I know who the man is. I think the man is Boaz. The guy whose fields you've been working in. I, I, think, I think he should be your husband. And she gave her a couple of reasons. One, look at the way he's cared for you. I mean, through this whole harvest, look at the way, how graciously he has treated you. I mean, he let you glean in the fields with the harvesters when he was supposed to tell you, wait until they're gone and you would have to harvest with all the other poor. But he said, no, 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 no. I'm going to let you go ahead and, and go in and you just work right along with them. He made sure that you were protected. He made sure that you had food. He made sure that you had water to drink as you were working. He didn't do that for, for any of the other poor. He did that for you. He even made his harvesters drop some of the grain on purpose so that what you harvested at the end of the day was far more than anyone else would be. I just maybe, I'm seeing in this through his kindness to you, the grace he's demonstrated to you that He's probably the man. And then she said, another, she said, now reason number two is, he's a close relative. Now stop. Because I don't know what some of you just thought. Wait a minute, Ronnie. So Naomi is encouraging Ruth to marry a close relative. So I'm assuming they must have been hillbillies. Is that right? Listen, I take offense at that remark because I'm a hillbilly. We don't marry our close relatives, do we, Cousin Lynn? Man, I've waited all week to say that. Never told her I was going to say that. She's got to stay for the second service now so that I can use that joke again. (laughs) Now, what does that mean? Close relative. Here's the deal. In this culture, if a man died leaving behind a widow with no children, the nearest relative to the man who passed away had a right and a responsibility to marry this widow and bear children with her. Hopefully they could bear a son together. And this son would be considered to be the heir of the deceased man. So this heir could carry on his name and his legacy. And so what she's saying is, he's in a position to do that. But not only would this close relative marry the widow, hopefully have a son who could be an heir... This, this close relative uh, would redeem the estate of any Jew, any related Jew who had fallen into poverty and had sold or was having to sell off their land as a means to live. This close relative would step in and buy the estate. And in this case, it was going to be Naomi's estate, it appears. Buy it. And then not use it for themselves, not keep it to themselves, but then they would give that to the heir they produced with the widow they married. So you got to see, and this, is, this has got to be one really generous dude if he's going to do that. And she said, but he is the relative that would be in a position. So I think it's him. And then she looked at Ruth and she gave her some really sound advice. She said, uh, go take a bath. Huh? Honey, you need to. I thought, did that insult Ruth? You know, honey, you need a bath. Go take a bath. And then she said, now put on perfume and put on your best dress. And tonight, Boaz and all the other men are going to be up on the threshing floor. They're, they're going to be threshing out the wheat. And said, you're going to go up there. 
And you're going to watch him from a distance, but you're not going to let him see you. Does this sound like the first biblical example of stalking? You're going up there, and you're going to watch him from a distance, and you're not going to let him see you. But he's going to eat, and he's going to drink, and he's going to you know, be in good spirits, and he's going to lie down up there. The men would typically sleep with this pile of grain to keep people from stealing it. And she said, you watch where he lies down, and when he's good and asleep, you go over and you take the blanket off of his feet. And you lie down at his feet. And when he wakes up, he's going to tell you what you should do next. Now, if we were reading from the NCM translation, the New Country Music translation, we probably would have heard her say something like this, here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down. (laughs) Some of you have never listened to country music, you didn't get that. (laughs) Don't ask anybody, okay? Don't ask what that means. You ask the question, was she encouraging her to do something illicit? Was she encouraging Ruth to go up there and make some kind of a sexual advance toward him? Absolutely not, and we will see that in just a moment. So Ruth did exactly as she was told. She watched, she watched him go to sleep. She goes over. She takes the blanket off of his feet. Why would she do that? Well, have you ever been, think about this, some cool night, you know, this cold outside, and, and all of a sudden the, co- you, you, the covers, they're off of your feet. For whatever reason, you've been kicking, you've been thrashing, or your husband's been kicking and thrashing, but the covers come off of your feet. What happens to you in just a, uh, just a few moments? You know what you do? You wake up. That's the reason she did that, so that he would eventually wake up. And what do you do when you realize that the covers are off of your feet? Do you immediately spring out of the bed, go turn on the light, fix the covers, and then jump back in the bed? No, 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 you don't do that. Who wants to get out from under the covers on a cold night? You know what you do? You start reaching, right, with your foot. You start reaching. See if you can find it, stretch it out, get it back over your feet. And so obviously this is what Boaz is doing. He's trying to find the end of the covers, and he kicks Something that turns out to be someone. And so nobody was there when he went to bed. So he's startled and he says out loud, who are you? To his surprise, he hears Ruth's voice when she said, it's me, Ruth, your servant. Would you spread the corner of your blanket over me? Because after all, you're my kinsman redeemer. What was she doing? This phrase, spread, oh, spread the blanket over me, was used another time in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 16, God used it in reference to the nation of Israel. And what he was referring to was entering into a covenant relationship. That's what it represents. So what she has done is she has proposed to Boaz. She's saying, Why don't, as you have cared for me all these weeks, why don't you make it permanent, big boy? Why don't you take me to be your wife? Because after all, you are the one in line to marry me. Now here's this middle-aged bachelor. And remember now, you remember how we pictured Ruth last week? Angelina Jolie in her prime, huh? This young woman. 
So here's this middle-aged bachelor, and he's got this Angelina Jolie lookalike who has just proposed to him. How do you think he responded? Do you think he went, oh, honey, this is a lot to think about. Uh, you're going to have to let me go home, crunch the numbers, see how this all works into my, my budget, and would you mind if I talked to my pastor, maybe got some counsel for him, and you know, I just don't know. You, this is just a lot for me to think about. What do you think he said? He praised God. He was like, oh, praise the Lord and, and, and bless you. This is, what, this is what he said about her. You could have had any young man you wanted, rich or poor. You could have had any one of them. That t- what does that tell you about the way you look, man? Huh? Come on. You could have had any of them, but yet you have proposed to this old geezer. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. You don't have to worry about anything else. I'll take care of it from this point on. I'll take care of it. And he said, I, I tell you what, you, let's just, you just lie down. We're going to get some sleep. And he said, but tomorrow I've got to handle an issue. Because I am a close relative. But there's a relative closer than me. He's got to know about this. And he's, he's like, you know, if he wants Elimelech's estate, if he wants to redeem it, then he gets to redeem it. Which means if he wants to marry you, i got to let him marry you. So we gotta, we got an issue that's got to be resolved. Now he said, before the sun's high in the sky, you got to get off this mountain. you got to get out of here before anybody recognizes you. Why would he say that? He was trying to protect her reputation. You know what it already said of her? In this conversation, he said, everybody in Bethlehem knows that you're a virtuous woman. Now, you think about, think about that statement. He didn't say everyone in Bethlehem knows who you are. He said everyone in Bethlehem knows that you are a virtuous woman. So he's saying this to protect her integrity. So, you know, first light gets there, the birds are starting to sing. they got just kind of that gray light time, one of my favorite times of the day. And, and so the, he, he wakes her up and he says, hand me your coat. And he, and he takes that coat and he pours six scoops of barley in it. According to my studies, that was about 60 pounds of barley. He makes a makeshift backpack out of it, puts it on his shoulders, and he said, hey, uh, take that to your mother-in-law. Why would he do that? He knew who was in the driver's seat in this whole situation. He knew where this was coming from. He's like, you make sure you get this to her. So he puts this pack on her back. Now, don't you think about this. It's a 60-pound pack of grain. And she carries it back to Naomi's house. Now, let me tell you what that tells me about Ruth. Ruth was, number one, a godly woman. Number two, she was a beautiful woman. But number three, she must have been one stout woman. You know what? She could pray for you, charm you, or whoop your tail if she needed to. She goes back to Naomi, she plops that bunch of grain down, and, and of course I believe Naomi had a pot of coffee brewed and said, I can't wait to hear what's happened. They sat down and began to share, and, and she said, but Naomi, there's a problem. There's a guy that's in line to, to redeem your estate and marry me other than him. And you know what Naomi said? Don't you fret. Don't you worry. Because I promise you, that man won't rest. He won't let the sun go down until he has taken care of this. Why don't we stop right there? I know what some of you are thinking. Man, I want to know what happened. 
I want to know if he married her. We are not going to binge listen to these sermons, right? We've got to wait a week before I can come back and tell you the rest of the story. And don't you dare go read it. You got me? Nobody going to read this? <laughs> That's the first time in your life you ever heard the preacher say, Don't read the Bible. I want to stop there because I think there's a great lesson here that we can't afford to overlook. You ready for it? Bad times will turn into blessed times. Is that, is that the way it reads? Good, good. I, I don't have any notes. I don't have anything like that. So I kind of, I guess I could say it any number of ways, but I like that. Bad times will turn into blessed times. You know why that is? Because the same God who allows misfortune will one day send good fortune. You with me? The same God who allows misfortune will one day send good fortune. Now, a lot of bad stuff happened to Naomi. And and if you've missed any of these sermons, I'd highly recommend you go back and reconnect with us. But a lot of bad stuff happened to her. And I'll tell you, some bad stuff happened to Ruth. But all the bad things are recorded in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. That's it. All the bad stuff is recorded in those first five verses. And then you come to verse number 6 and verse number 7, and, and we're going to read these together. Even though we read them in the first, very first sermon, I want us to read them again. Take a look at this. It says, Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed, you see that word, key word, his people in Judah by giving them good crops. What's the next word? Again. That's a key word. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab. Thank God, to return to her homeland with her two daughters-in-law. She set out from the place, you see in this, where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. Now, from this, I think we can gather that if there had been a time in Israel's history when God had blessed them, and then had obviously gone through a period of time where he wasn't blessing them. Well, guess what? He is blessing them again. Key thought. There was a time when it didn't rain. Well, guess what? It's raining again. It rained enough that it softened the ground so that the farmers could plow the soil and plant their crops. It rained enough that these crops flourished. I'm talking about they could see from the heavy heads of grain on these stalks that this was going to be a record harvest. And, and man, it, it, it rained. These, 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 this, this barley and this wheat was ripening on the stalk. You know what was happening? Israel's bad times were turning into blessed times. Now, while this is happening, you know, you got Naomi and Ruth over here in Moab. That's where they were. And they heard in Moab that God was blessing in Israel again. Don't you think that was some good fortune? What if they'd never heard? They would have continued to suffer in Moab and miss out on the blessings of God in Israel. But fortunately, they heard. You know when they arrived back in Bethlehem? At the beginning of barley harvest. Wouldn't it have been something if they arrived at the end of the barley harvest? And people said, whoa, you should have seen the harvest this year. You you know, for at least ten weeks, you guys would would have had it made. But you missed it. Oh, no, no, no. They arrived at the beginning, which means they were good for about two and a half months. Don't you think that's some good fortune? When Ruth goes out to glean in the field, she ends up in the fields of a man named Boaz who was gracious to her and did favors for her. Don't you think that might have been some good fortune? Absolutely it was. 
He ends up being the kinsman redeemer who can redeem by this estate from Naomi and then actually give it back to her first uh, male grandchild. Well, that's got to be some good fortune. And then Ruth proposes to this wealthy man and he said yes and she's about to live out a rags to riches story. Don't you think that's some good fortune? What's happening here? Naomi and Ruth's bad times are turning into blessed times. That's what's taking place. There's a principle throughout the Bible that that I want to make sure that you understand. And that is oftentimes after periods of intense suffering come in a season of incredible blessing. Oh, listen to it. I don't think you got that. I don't believe you got it. This, This is what I see in the Bible over and again. Oftentimes... Following a season of intense suffering comes a season of incredible blessing. You say, where do you see it? What about the life of Joseph? Suffered for 13 years. I mean suffered. The next thing you know, he goes from suffering to being the second most powerful man in the world. Incredible wealth was, you know, he married a woman, had kids all over. The rest of his life was a fairy tale, right? Intense suffering, incredible blessing. What about old Job? You're familiar with Job? I mean, one day all ten, ki- all ten of his children died. He was, he, was, he was filthy rich. He lost everything he had on the same day. And then it wasn't long after that he lost his health. You know, wouldn't you say he was going through some bad times and some intense suffering? By the time you read at the end of the book, you know, God has given him 10 more kids, which means in 20, in, in heaven he had 20, twice as many as he had. But he also gave him twice as much as wealth on this earth as he ever had. What do you see there? Intense suffering followed by incredible blessing. What about the life of Jesus? Don't we see it there too? Suffered, died on a cross. I'm talking about in, in, you know, intense suffering and the next thing you know, incredible blessing. He's raised from the grave victorious. It's all through the Bible. You see it in creation. Winter is followed by spring. And there ain't one thing winter can do to prevent that from happening. The darkest night is followed by light. When the morning comes, that light's going to push the darkness right out of sight. Ain't nothing the night can do to stop that. I'm talking to somebody this morning, and you're in those bad times. I I got a word from the Lord for you. Your bad times are going to turn into blessed times. That's not wishful thinking. That's not positive thinking. I'm telling you, that's a word from the Lord for somebody sitting here. Blessings are going to start falling in your life like rain out of the sky. You're going to feel a momentum shift. And and, and for a long time, you've been in a period where it felt like everything went wrong. You're about to enter a period where you feel like you can do no wrong. So in light of that, what, what should you do? Let me make this recommendation. Hope again. Hope again. If indeed on the backside of bad times there are blessed times, I, I want you to be expecting them. Naomi lost something along the way. Maybe that's not an accurate way to put it. Maybe it should be put like this. Something was taken from Naomi along the way. You know what it was? It was hope. 
She never expected that things would ever be any better. She just felt like this bitter life that she had been dealt was going to be her life until the very end. She had no hope. It had been stolen from her. I mean, one day it quit raining, and I'm sure that she and her husband prayed that it would start raining. It didn't. You know, one day this famine set in. I'm sure they prayed, you know, Lord, end this famine. He didn't. It just got worse. They leave everything behind and relocate to Moab, thinking we'll just be here for a little while. Ten years later, Naomi's still there. I believe every miserable day in that dark place stole a little hope from her. She buries her husband. She buries her sons. And I believe that every disappointment and every tragedy stole a little hope until she came to the conclusion that things are never going to get any better for me. She had absolutely no hope until one day Ruth shows up from gleaning in the fields and she's got this 30-pound bag of grain and she realized somebody had to do this girl a favor. And she said, who was? Who helped you? And she said, Boaz. When she said Boaz, now listen to me, guys. Listen to me. When she said Boaz, there was a light bulb came on overhead and she saw something. She saw something she hadn't seen in a long time. She saw the hand of God at work in her life. She realized there is just no coincidence that Ruth met Boaz and Boaz is treating her the way that he has. God had to orchestrate this as a means of getting us through these bad times, right? God was being good to them even when life was bad. But she saw more than that. She saw possibilities. She saw the big picture. She began to put two and two together and realize, wait a minute. Boaz is not just a short-term solution that God has put in our path. He, I think, is the long-term solution. He's going to marry that girl. There going to father a son together. He's going to buy a Limelech's estate and then give that to my grandson. That's what's about to happen here. You know what happened to her? Hope was rekindled. She saw light at the end of the tunnel. She realized my bad times are about to give away to some blessed times. And so are yours. And you need to expect it. You need to expect it. You need to be looking for it. You say, I don't see any evidence, Ronnie. I look at my life, I don't see any evidence. How long do you think it took Naomi to see the evidence? You know when her life really began to turn? When it started raining in Israel. When it started raining in Israel, I'll tell you what, God was setting things up so that he could not only bless a nation, because he could bless a woman and her daughter-in-law. Those rains had to fall for a while to soften that earth and to, and to produce those crops. I don't know how long it took, but I'm going to tell you what. Naomi didn't see it, but her, her life was turning around even then. She didn't see it. She's walking out of Moab. You know what she's doing? She's walking out of her bad times, and she's walking into good times. You think she saw that? She didn't see that. She didn't see what God was up to until Ruth mentioned the name of Boaz, and then it all came together. And I want you to understand something. Maybe you don't see it, but I'm talking to somebody this morning, and sometime back, your life took a turn for the better. You don't see it yet, but you will. You need to look for it. You need to expect it. You need to look for the evidence that there's been a momentum shift in your life. And you need to hope again. When I was a young Christian, I had this place out in the middle of nowhere where I'd go pray. And I went over there pretty much every day of the year. And it didn't matter what season it was. Barnes, I loved to go over there in the fall. 
when the air was crisp and the woods looked like a kaleidoscope of color. I loved it, Jimmy. I loved to go in the spring when the world was waking up and everything's coming back to life and flowers are blooming and birds are singing. That was, you know, I learned to love going over there in the summer. But you know what I would do? I'd be there before the sun came up and I'd watch the sun come up and then I'd, sometimes I'd go in the afternoon for just the last few minutes of light, watch the sun go down. I learned a lot. But I also went in the winter. And sometimes it was hard to enjoy being there in the winter months. I remember being there one day and I looked out over the landscape and the, you know, I just, this was my thought. This is colorless. I mean colorless. The sky was gray and dark. The trees were kind of brown and black and gray and the, the grass was brown and I thought, man, colorless. This is almost like a black and white shot. And then I prayed and I said this little prayer to God. This landscape is a perfect illustration of my life. God, I feel like sometime back you pulled the plug on my life and let the color drain out. And I kept standing there. And I, and I saw this little circle of green. I was up on a hill. I could see this little circle of green down in the valley. Out of curiosity, I walked down there. And the closer I got, I could see what it was. You know what it was? It was a patch of daffodils. About that high. I don't even know why I did it. I got down on my knees just to kind of look at it. It was one of those moments where you hear the still, small voice of God whisper in your spirit. He asked me a question. He said, what do these daffodils mean? Mean? I thought about it for a minute and I said, you know what it means? It means spring's coming. It's not too far away. Doesn't mean spring's here. It's still winter. But it means spring's coming. And it's not too far away. It's the evidence that things are about to change and you're about to infuse this landscape with life again you're about to bring all the color back into it that's what it's the evidence that's going to happen he says right he said you know what these daffodils do they give you hope that there's a big change coming in this in the seasons right and i'm like yes lord yes he made me a promise he said, I know good and well that you and Lynn are going through some bad stuff. You and your family, you're going through some bad stuff. In your mind, you've kind of accepted the fact that this colorless life that y'all are experiencing is just the way it's always going to be. He said, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to make you a promise. And it's going to be the evidence that things are not always going to be this way. I promise you, your season of winter, spiritually speaking, is going to end. And it's going to end soon. And you need to be expecting it. 
It won't be over today. It won't be over tomorrow. But you give this thing time and I promise you it's about to run its course and there are better days. Your bad times are about to evolve into some blessed times. And Ronnie, you need to be looking for it. And you know what I did? I drove off of that hill taking something with me that I didn't have when I got there. You know what it was? It was hope. Man, it was, life was ever bit as colorless and tough for the next few weeks as it had been prior to that. But I had something in me that helped me get through it. It was the realization that this is going to be short-lived. One of these days, God's bringing the color back to my life. Our life. And He was faithful in that. You know what I hope that this sermon would do for you today? You know what I prayed that it would do for you today? There's some of you that came in here and you're in the midst of the bad times. And you're missing something that's critical. You're missing something. You're missing hope. My prayer is that when you walk out of here, you take something with you. And that is hope. The absolute conviction. The absolute confidence. Knowing that the same God who has allowed misfortune in your life will one day send good fortune. And because of that, bad times turn into blessed times. You hope again. That's what I want. Let's pray together. All heads bowed. If you're visiting with us, I want you to know something. I'm, I'm not a uh, motivational speaker. I don't try to employ a lot of positive thinking. Man, I'm not here to tell you how, your, how to have your best life now. I don't, I don't mean to cut on anybody. I'm a preacher. My job is to listen to God until I understand what He's saying. And then come and pass it on to you. And I want you to know something. God sent me here to tell you. That the bad times are going to turn into blessed times. Hey, listen to me. Did you hear that? I'm telling you, he sent me to tell you this. The bad times are going to turn into blessed times. It's coming. You say, when? I don't know. I think it's going to be soon. So here's what I want you to do. Live in the expectancy that God is going to turn things around for you. Would you do that? Hope again. Wait patiently. But wait trusting, believing that this is going to happen. You know what hope would do for you? It gets you through the rest of this. Until the blessed times arrive. That's what it will do. I promise you. Father, I I pray that you'll impart hope to people who are here. That maybe sometime today they'll laugh. Maybe they haven't laughed in a long time. Sometime today they'll smile. Sometime today they'll feel their optimism has restored. I don't want them to keep looking over their shoulder at what happened. I don't want them to keep looking around at what is missing or what is, has happened in there, I want to start looking out into the future realizing you got something better. Blessed.
on the way. In the name of Jesus, we pray this together. Amen. Thank you for being here. Have a blessed day.